I'd invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. That is our assignment this morning, Philippians chapter 4, and verses 10 through 13. Now, this morning, I'd have you consider Martin Lloyd-Jones's assertion. He writes in his book titled Spiritual Depression, he writes these words. Now, the thing we have to grasp about, about Christian truth is that it is something that governs the whole of our life. The Christian gospel dominates the entire life of the Christian. And I would say yes and amen to this. And certainly this is exactly what Paul has demonstrated for us as we've traveled through this letter that he's written to the church in Philippi. Paul identified himself as a slave of Christ Jesus in the opening verse. The gospel is what led, Paul, led to Paul's Roman imprisonment. It's what landed him in shackles. And yet, those very circumstances turning out for the greater progress of the gospel in verse 12 of chapter 1. And he desired that Christ would be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death, in verse 20 of chapter 1. And then he, as a summation, says, For to me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ, in verse 21. He goes on to say, only conduct yourselves, only live your lives in a manner, as a heavenly citizen, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, knowing at the same time that belief in Christ and suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ accompanies the life that is marked out for the gospel. In fact, both saving faith and suffering are graciously given to the Christian according to verse 29. The Christian gospel also fosters unity, and not a unity without humility, for that is necessary. It's that very same attitude as we saw exemplified in our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only exemplified in his life, but commanded of us, according to chapter 2 and verse 5. The dominance of the gospel in life results in working out one's salvation with fear and trembling and doing all things without grumbling or disputing according to chapter 2 and verse 14. That we would remain blameless and innocent, above reproach and appearing as lights in this world according to verse 15. And it's a life as was reflected by Timothy and Epaphroditus, we saw this. Timothy's proven worth evidenced in his selfless service for the sake of the gospel to Paul. He, he, he desired to, to further the gospel as we saw in chapter two and verse 22. And then with Epaphroditus, serving as both messenger and minister to Paul's needs, even coming close to death for the work of Christ. But why does the Christian gospel dominate the entire life of the Christian? Why is this so? Well, I think Paul tells us. 
And he tells us this over and over again. It's because of the person and work of Christ. It's because of that saving message of Christ that Christ then governs the Christian's entire life. And so then we count it, we count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing this Christ, the Christ that Paul has taken so much time to to glorify in this letter. And it all sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? That sounds sounds quite simple, but if we start to think about how we apply this, then we need to stand firm in the Lord. We need to ensure that we're helping others to think the same way. We need to be always rejoicing. We need to be always keeping in mind the Lord's return is is near, even while we are presenting a gentle spirit to each and every person, never anxious, always praying. This is the life of the of the Christian. And it's not so easy then, but it does require our work, and we know that by God's grace, he enables us to do these very things. And not only that, but then to meditate, as we heard last week, to meditate on all that is virtuous and to imitate Paul's life, even as he desired to imitate Christ. And so it's pretty straightforward then, isn't it? Well, Paul isn't quite finished with us just yet. And the way he ends this letter is really quite profound. He's given much instruction and many encouragements and exhortations. But Paul has yet to thank the church in Philippi for what they've done for him. They've sent Epaphroditus, not only sent Epaphroditus, but they've also sent along a gift for Paul, likely a financial gift to help him out as he continues to languish in his Roman imprisonment that it would supply for his needs because that wouldn't be done otherwise. And the way that he goes about to, to say thank you, which is one of the purposes that we, that we have already seen in this letter. It's been stated again and again. But the way he goes about saying thank you is, is really quite fascinating. And it's, I think, typical of Paul. Nowhere does he use the word thank you. You won't see it there. It doesn't appear. But his thank you is implied. And as I've already said, in typical fashion then, Paul seizes even this moment to glorify Christ yet again. To glory in Christ, really. Leveraging their generous gift as an opportunity to teach us about Christian contentment. And for us, then it provides perhaps a much-needed self-examination. Do I enjoy true contentment could be the question this morning. Am I truly content? In his work titled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs defined contentment in this way. He said, it is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. A sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit in us which freely submits to 
and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition, every single last condition that we face. And it really then is, as we would see from this, and we could glean even from Burroughs' definition, this is a work of the Holy Spirit on the heart of man. Now, the world that we currently occupy is not characterized by a spirit of contentment. Rather, I would say we see all around us the spirit of discontentment. And it's pandemic, really. Most are not satisfied, perhaps never will be satisfied ever. The have-nots, what do they want? They want more. And the ones that have, they too want still more, right? And so we need to ask ourselves, what makes us contented? Upon what things is our contentment contingent? Is it safety? Is it security? Is it rights and freedoms? Is it that we would see peace or unity? Would it be our health? Or maybe having health care? Is it a certain government that would be in power? Or maybe even a certain government program that would bring contentment? Maybe it would be shelter or employment or money, a big bank account, investments, toys, possessions, a life of ease. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's more vacation time. Maybe it's more clothing, more food. Or maybe your contentment's bound up in relationships. Maybe you, you think that your contentment can be found in the person that's sitting even beside you. Maybe that's the source of contentment. Others find contentment in, in drugs and alcohol, in, in sex and pornography, in other, some other sinful habit. Maybe your contentment would be from, from having power, having some kind of a certain reputation, Maybe that's where you think contentment is found. Well, which of these can become idols? Each and every single last one, right? Every single last one of those things on that list can become an idol that then preoccupies us and really just furthers our discontentment because there's no completion in any of that. There's no true satisfaction in any one of those. As Spurgeon wrote, satisfied with earth, they are content without heaven. So desperate is the tendency of human nature to pride and forgetfulness of God. And as soon as we have a double stock of manna and begin to hoard it, it breeds worms and becomes a stench in the nostrils of God. And we need to remember that. We need to admit that we recognize hunger far sooner than we do recognize being filled, right? We recognize being without far sooner than we recognize being with. And so contentment in our world can certainly seem elusive by nature, but it wasn't to the Apostle Paul. 
And we'll see that here as we read these verses. Let's pick up the text here in verse 10 of chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, 10 through 13. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is, this is God's word. And we'll notice here this morning that Paul provides his readers with three distinctives of Christian contentment in order that the gospel would dominate your life in every circumstance. Three distinctives. Of, the, of Christian contentment in order that the gospel would dominate your life in every circumstance. And so we've got a three-part outline here. First, we'll see that Christian contentment is appreciative of God's providence in verse 10. And second, we'll see that Christian contentment is adaptable. It's content in whatever circumstance in verses 11 and 12. And finally, we'll see that Christian contentment is anchored. It's anchored in him who strengthens me. We'll see this in verse 13. So it's appreciative, it's adaptable, and it is anchored. First, let's consider that it is appreciative, appreciative of the providence of God. Take a look at verse 10 again. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Now, it's been evident that joy is a main, main theme, may, perhaps the main theme. Many would argue that it is the main theme in Paul's letter, and we noted that Paul's joy was never based on his circumstances, right? But rather, his joy and rejoicing sprung from his relationships, first and foremost, his with the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he also gleaned great joy from those in Philippi, the church. And while the Philippians' gift provided Paul this occasion to rejoice in the Lord, Paul's joy cannot be at all credited to the gift. Paul's rejoicing is due to the Lord's faithfulness. He rejoices in the Lord. And this Lord's faithfulness is, is evidenced by the lives of the Philippians, by their faithfulness in, in sending this gift. And Paul has already referred to the Philippians as his joy and his crown in chapter 4 and verse 1. They were the cause of Paul's current delight. And metaphorically, they were also the faithful brethren which would serve as his adornment at Christ's return. In that day, they will be the fruit of Paul's 
faithful labors. He didn't toil in vain. We saw that. And it's interesting that here as he writes this letter, it's been 10 years. 10 years have passed since those first converts were made in Philippi. And Paul still longs for them. He prays for them. He's, he's, he's asked that he who began a good work in you would perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We saw that in chapter 1 and verse 6. His love and affection for the church in Philippi, for the believers, remains undiminished. And now Paul's rejoicing flows from his intimate union in Christ and realizing that he enjoys this together with his generous partners in the gospel. And this is a tremendous rejoicing. He uses the word, the Greek term here, megalos, mega. That's where we get mega from, right? This is a tremendous rejoicing that Paul is experiencing in his heart as he rejoices greatly in the Lord. And yet he gives a still higher definition for this rejoicing. He says, that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Now, first of all, let's, let's reject any thought that, that Paul is expressing some form of, of impatience or ingratitude toward the Philippians. That's not what he means by now at last. He's not trying to be sarcastic here by any means. But what does Paul mean by at last you have revived. This word revived is rendered in the NASB, is anaphilete, anaphilete. And it's a horticultural term. It's a term that means to bloom again or to flourish. You see, a, a plant can be dormant and yet fully functional, fully uh, alive, right? As as the cells continue to nourish the rest of the plant, even in its dormancy and awaiting a time to bud and bloom again. And this is how he describes the Philippians' concern for Paul. It's entered into a productive season again, as is evidenced by this gift that is sent. And so Paul's word picture here illustrates their genuine effort and generosity and Paul goes on to say, then, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And we need to note here as well that both of the verbs here appear in the imperfect tense. And this is significant. This is important for us to understand. The imperfect tense describes a persistent action that happened in the past. You see, the pillages were flying home last night, Right? They were flying home, so they were persistently in, in route, in their flight, and that's an imperfect tense as it's used. And here, Paul's using the imperfect tense to describe how he was persistently on the minds of the Philippians over the course of this last decade. He has no doubt whatsoever about that. And not only that, but it remained persistently unseasonable until this point in time to exercise that generosity. And so these imperfect tense verbs here are important for us to understand exactly what has been going through the minds 
of the brethren in Philippi. They've desired to send something, but for whatever reason, they just didn't have an opportunity. We don't know if they didn't have the means by which to send it. Maybe they didn't know exactly Paul's whereabouts in that immediate time. Maybe they had no one to send it with. There could be a a whole host of reasons. We don't know. He doesn't tell us. But what we do know is they, they kept Paul in their minds. He was a concern to them throughout this time. And now has come a time where they could exercise that generosity. And so it's all come together now. And in God's timing and his perfect providence, this has occurred. Paul recognizes this. There's no hint, again, as I've said, that Paul is impatient. He knew that they hadn't forgotten about him. They hadn't forgotten about his ministry. They hadn't forgotten about the gospel. He wasn't dependent upon them in any way. I think we can uh, read that out of this as well. Nor was he expectantly waiting for their support. Nor was Paul's gratitude directed at them either, according to verse 10. But rather, he is caused to rejoice in the Lord. He is caused to rejoice in the Lord because of this because of this occasion, knowing that all that is received, right? All that he has received comes from who? Not even from the Philippians, right? All that he receives is from God. We see this in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And Paul acknowledges this in verse 19 of chapter 4, when he says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Who supplies the needs? Who supplies the needs? God supplies. God does this. This is the Lord's generous provision. God reveals the need. Then he initiates and empowers the givers to address that need. Then he supplies for that very need. And then he meets that need. This is the way God works. Is your life and destiny derived from God's sovereign will? We need to ask ourselves that. Is your life and destiny derived from God's sovereign will? If so, then are your sufferings derived from God's sovereign will? We would have to say yes. What about your needs? Do they arise out of God's sovereign will for you and your life? Or what about the way in which those needs are met? Is this all according to the sovereign providence of God at work in your life as he is working all things together for your good? Or does not having your needs met raise a discontentment in you? Have you lost sight of the providence of God? 
Remember, God is sovereignly provident and working all things for good. And that's what Paul expresses here. He expresses his appreciation for. Because the Lord's faithfulness caused the Philippians' generosity to bloom towards a content Paul. And this caused him to rejoice in the Lord. We need to remember this. We need to remember this. When there are periods of time when you think that you are going without, when you think that you're in a time of want or of need, remember God's timing. Remember his, his purpose even in that and through that. And that you will lack nothing. The word of God promises as much. You will lack nothing that you are in need of because your heavenly father, he loves you, he cares for you. And this is what causes Paul to rejoice in the Lord. And so while he's thankful for this gift, no doubt, he rejoices in the Lord's faithfulness as he sees it play out in the lives of those in Philippi giving to him. Now, secondly, Christian contentment is adaptable. It's adaptable. It's content in whatever circumstances. And we see this in verses 11 and 12. Train your eyes back down at the text there. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And we see here that Paul begins with a disclaimer. A disclaimer. He wants the Philippians to know that despite rejoicing in the Lord over their revived concern, it shouldn't be understood as him having any unmet needs. He feels fully supplied for. Perceived needs and times of poverty lacking the essentials have never governed this apostle's life, ever. And from Paul's perspective, he hasn't experienced physical want. But how can we say this? How can we say this? When in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, as he's describing the hardships that he's endured throughout his ministry, and even as was, was forecasted, right, that he would have to go through many trials, he writes, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is how he describes his experience. And yet, I think we can fairly say that he hasn't experienced physical want to, its, to the depths. And that's because he had the right mindset to address all of these circumstances. Remember, Paul's joy does not arise from his circumstances. His explanation is... For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. His ministry experiences for the sake of Christ have taught him much, have taught him contentment in all circumstances. And he trusts that God has ordained those circumstances and trusts not only that he has ordained them, 
But then he trusts that the Lord would guide him through each one, support him, strengthen him in those moments, and allow him to have a settled contentment. This is the school that Paul went through, right? This is how he learned. This is how he became accustomed to it through much practice. And this word that the NES renders content is autarkes, autarkes, which really is a, a term that Stoic philosophers use. They use this term to describe a person's self-sufficiency. And so he's speaking into the culture here. He's trying to correct the Philippians' thinking to point out something very specific. You see, in Greek culture, and this is what they were immersed in, in Greek culture, this term described the person who, through discipline, had achieved a state of independence from external circumstances. And not only that, but who had discovered personal resources adequate for any situation that might come. And I believe that Paul has done exactly that. But the problem with the Stoics was that they remained emotionally unattached to their circumstances. They, theirs was a trained indifference. And that by no means describes Paul's practice. You see, he was a very emotional man. He was a very, very emotionally attached to the brethren. We see this time and time again. He longed for the brethren in chapter 1 and verse 8. He continually calls them beloved, a term of endearment. He said that God had prevented him from having sorrow upon sorrow by sparing Epaphroditus. And so he anticipated, even as Epaphroditus was, was gravely ill, that this might even result in his death that would lead to sorrow compounded upon sorrow. And he weeped. He, he, he weeps for those who aren't walking in accordance to the pattern that he and others had set in the church, according to verse 3 and 15, or 18 rather. And so his was, was no trained indifference. He was very in touch with his circumstances. And yet the Lord provided him contentment in each and every one, completely free from worry over those circumstances. He had no trouble, even though the situations would fluctuate, he knew that, that his contentment was independent of people. It was independent of the things that they had to offer him. It was independent even of the circumstances that he found himself in. And that's because he is satisfied. He's satisfied with whatever material provision he receives from the Lord to address his circumstances. But look at verse 12 again, the middle of verse 12, or rather the end. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. Rather, that's the start of that verse. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And so Paul understood how to be strictly disciplined, to to address being severely restricted. He even knew how to deny himself when the circumstances called for it. While on the other hand, he also understood how to live with a rich provision. 
The word here rendered prosperity is the same word that he uses again later in this very verse, abundance. And so it's better translated, he knows how to live in, in abundance. And we ought not to spiritualize away the text here either. We know that Paul here is, is speaking specifically about his, his general physical needs, including food. This is what he is referring to. This is, this is, these are the things where, in which he is, he, the Lord is, is granting him contentment when, when, there, it, when these needs arise or even when there is an abundance. His contentment is, is very adaptable. So that he was equally unaffected by both riches and by poverty equally content despite or in spite of the ups and downs that he continually faced. And so let's think for a moment here. Let's think for a moment, even in our current context, our current culture, are you content when you face the need for strict discipline in, in your lives, for, for being really trained, for even restricting yourselves in, in some way? Think of the cost of living and how it has increased. Does that bring you discontentment? Does your earning not keeping up with the pace of that cost of living as it increases, does that bring discontentment? What about the cost of rent, the food, clothing, fuel, taxes, all of these things, right? All of these things can arise a discontentment within us as we find it difficult to, to save. But what would Paul say to all of that? What would he say to, to any or to all of that? And, and what about if the government would, would decide to cut taxes that it would be to your benefit in some way? Then there's a sense of abundance there, isn't it? Would you still remain discontent? Or would that be the source of contentment then? We need to properly calibrate our contentment. We need to remain content. We need to remain rejoicing in the Lord. And do you? Do you do this in times of abundance as well? How is your contentment manifested in abundance? What does that look like? Do you rejoice or are you driven even to pursue more? As we saw already, as I said, in the spirit of discontentment in this world, right? Those who have want still more. Does that attitude ever arise in us? And we have to think, which, which of those two would actually lend itself more to being content? To being without or to having abundance? Which would cause us quicker to have contentment, to find contentment. Well, Paul could find contentment in every individual circumstance, and that's really what he's saying here. In every set of circumstances, in every single circumstance. He uses both the singular and the plural when he's describing these circumstances. And whether in each individual or every set of circumstances, his is an earnest desire toward godliness in every circumstance. And we see this 
even as he describes it in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8, where he writes, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? By contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And look at the middle of verse 12 here again in Philippians 4. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. I have learned here is a word that refers to the rites of initiation that a person would go through to enter the secrets and privileges of mystery religions, of the mystery religions. Now, we have to admit that contentment is not something that comes automatically to Paul. Rather, it's these experiences, these initiatory experiences, what he has been initiated into that have allowed him to receive that secret of contentment. Whether he is being filled or he is satisfied with food, whether he is going hungry, even to the point of hunger pangs, or whether with tangible abundance or suffering from want, as he goes on to say at the end of that verse, in each one of these, he has contentment. And that suffering from want there at the end, or when, you know, even when we think of, of the food, this isn't the meal train arriving 15 minutes late. That's not what he's talking about, okay? And if that arises a discontentment in you. No, this is, he, he's speaking of a, of a deficiency here in something that would be otherwise of great advantage to him. This is something that would be vital, and yet he doesn't have it. He, in this moment, is, is describing a, mo a moment of impoverishment, that he is destitute in this, in this circumstance. But Paul says at the end of verse 12, what he says here likely extends even beyond just hunger, even beyond just physical needs. This, is, this would include being without proper clothing, being without shelter for a time. I have no doubt that this was part of, of his ministry experience. But even to go farther than that, then it required him to work harder. It required him even to go without rest at times. And yet, in all of these circumstances, Paul says that he is content. Paul said that he'd endured many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, as we saw in 2 Corinthians 11. And so we see here that Paul's contentment is very adaptable, right? And it's completely independent, completely independent of his circumstances, as should ours be, right? Our contentment should not be dependent upon our circumstances, ever, but rather it should be independent of our circumstances. We should never find ourselves at the mercy of our circumstances, and certainly not our contentment being at the mercy of our circumstances. And we see, we see Paul's contentment here, I think, played out vividly, even in Acts chapter 16. Let's turn to Acts chapter 16 for just 
a few moments. Now you'll remember in Acts chapter 16, he meets Lydia. She very quickly invites him after her heart being made responsive to the gospel, right? She, she invites Paul and others to, to come and stay with her in verse 15. And so here's a period of, of abundance in a sense, right? As Paul's needs are being provided for, but very quickly then we see that he casts a an evil spirit out of a young girl who was being used for profit, right? Used to to make money. And when her masters saw that that opportunity for profit was gone, they they became angry. And they, they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace before the authorities, right? And then it says there that In verse 22, the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded in order to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And so wounded and shackled, imprisoned, right? angry mob coming up against. And yet, what do we see is the response? What do we see is the response? In verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I think we see a contentment, a genuine Christian contentment in in a low point, maybe in Paul's ministry. We know that the shackles come off, the doors swing open, and that causes an opportunity for Paul to minister to the Philippian jailer, and not only to him, but to his whole household, right? To his whole household. And we pick it up in verse 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them at that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Things are turning for Paul here. His wounds have been washed, right? He's no longer at the... that low of low points. And he brought them into his house, that being the jailer, and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. Now I realize that that rejoicing that's being described there is the jailer, but I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever that Paul and Silas rejoiced as well as things had taking a turn here, all in God's providence. Now their wounds are washed, they're being fed, and no doubt they too rejoiced at all that God had done, not only in the lives of the jailer and his household, but also in their circumstances. This is a tangible example. And so we see that Christian contentment appreciates God's providence But it also, secondly, is adaptable, and therefore it's satisfied in all 
circumstances, in whatever circumstance. Now, finally, and thirdly, Christian contentment is anchored in him who strengthens me. It's anchored in him who strengthens me. And take a look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is a most glorious truth. Think about that for a moment. I can do all things through him or in him, more specifically, who strengthens me. This is the main idea of this passage. This is where we should derive the main thrust from. Paul has implied thankfulness for the Philippians' gift. And he said at the same time that he's content at, at the ends of each end of the spectrum, really, whether he has nothing or he has an abundance, he finds contentment. But he doesn't want to leave room for any misconception, any misconception on the part of the Philippians, and certainly not any misconception on our part either. And so he states the sure and steady anchor for and the source of his contentment. You see, his sufficiency is Christ. His sufficiency is Christ. He's already said to live is Christ. And Paul has the divine resource necessary to live contently. In Christ, he is empowered to prevail in all circumstances. Christ working instrumentally is the means of Paul's contentment whether when brought low or when in abundance, filled or hungry in abundance and suffering want, doesn't matter in all of those. But we need to glean something else from here as well. Okay, Certainly we know that the Lord works providentially and has been in Paul's life, and this is what he's pointing out, but we see in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15 something made very clear for us where the writer of Hebrews writes, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Okay? Free from material want. Being content with what you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Okay? And we can dig into that just a little further because that is an Old Testament that's the New Testament quoting from the Old Testament. And we read about this in Deuteronomy 31, verses 5, and then again in verse 8. This is where Moses writes, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. And then again in verse 8 of Deuteronomy 31. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And there it is. There's the key to contentment. Why can you be content? Why can you be content? It's because you have God with you. He is with you. Money and cars and houses and toys and 
collections of various things, possessions, everything that this world, everything in this world that you might think in some way brings happiness of some sort, what would Paul call that? Rubbish, right? It amounts to a dung heap, really. It's nothing. Now, he didn't have all of what I've just listed there, but certainly we saw his credentials. We saw the life that he lived, right? He had it all, and yet he counted it all as loss. Why? For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, right? And not only that, but knowing that the Lord was with him. In fact, Paul's life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. And he says, it's no longer Paul who lives, but Christ lives in Paul. And the life which he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God. This is what Paul said. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so he's very very clear in why he knows that he can be content in all situations because the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. The Lord is his strength. The Lord is his sufficiency. We see this even as he describes his suffering in 2 Corinthians 12. You know, when he speaks of the thorn in the flesh and how he asked that the Lord would that it might leave him. He asked three times. He implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Then picking it up in verse nine, and he has said to me, that being the Lord, has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was very clear on all of this. And we must be too. This is why Paul can say, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me, in him who strengthens me. Paul knew that his circumstances would change. They were temporary. But at the same time, he knew that he would look to the one who is eternal, who is unchanging. It was him who was strengthening Paul to be able to do all things. And we recognize that there are several paradoxes here as well, right? Let's just point those out. First, we see that the Christian's dependence on God's power doesn't remove our concerted effort. It's not like Paul just threw his hands up in the air and stopped doing anything and stopped working, right? No, there was effort involved in his part, even as he continued to be dependent, fully dependent upon the Lord. And so too, our effort does not remove nor contradict the reality of receiving divine grace in order to remain content. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, receiving divine grace and knowing that He will give us contentment. And secondly, just as we just read, Paul was was strong when he was weak, right? His contentment remained undiminished because his faith was undiminished. 
Then thirdly, there's there's another paradox. Paul was only independent of his circumstances when he was totally dependent upon the Lord. And so your independence requires dependence, right? And it requires your complete dependence. And yet we have to speak of the elephant in the room here as well, that being how misused this verse so often is, right? You'll see it up on the walls of gymnasiums, maybe. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Two Christian basketball teams facing off, right? Who will possibly win that battle? No, this verse is given in a context and not to be ripped out of that context. Contentment in spite of faithful generosity on the part of Philippians is cause for rejoicing in the Lord. Contentment brought about by trusting in the providence of God is the cause for rejoicing in the Lord, and that is what is giving Paul strength. He knows that he can do all things in these circumstances that he has just spoken about, right? That doesn't mean that one will have a three-foot-six vertical, right? That's not what this text is at all saying, nor should we interpret it that way. But let's remember that the strength of the Lord provides us to do all things. Paul has just described here with contentment so that we would be, that not, not so that we would be glorified, right? But that he would be glorified that Christ would receive glory. And so now, the thing that we have to grasp about Christian truth is that it is something that governs the whole of our lives. The Christian gospel dominates the entire life of the Christian, right down to our circumstances and the contentment that we find in those circumstances. And so we've seen three distinctives of Christian contentment in order that the gospel would dominate your life, right? That Christ would would be present in your mind continually. And this would make for a certain contentment, a Christian contentment that's appreciative of God's providence, knowing that he is over all things, that your contentment would be adaptable not dependent upon your circumstances, and that it would be anchored in him who gives you strength. Let's pray. Well, Father, these words are so easy to speak when we're not immediately in the circumstance. And yet we have to say yes and amen to all that Paul has said in recognizing that you are provident over our circumstances. And you supply for our needs as you see fit. And that there is contentment to be had in that. Oh, Father, help our minds to remember this daily. Oh, Father, may we not 
spew our discontentment over anything and in that moment be found not basking and trusting in you. Father, even forgive us of the times that we have lost our focus, that we have not rejoiced in the Lord in the circumstances, that we have those times when we have overlooked, have not even noticed your generous provision for us, but that we would be content continually, knowing that we can do all things through him who gives us strength, that you are with us continually. Well, thank you, Lord God. It's in the name of Christ that we pray this. Amen.